This is Sean Lynn Jones, and uh, I'm editor of International Security, orderly journal of international relations that is based at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. Today, I'm joined by Michael Beckley, who's a research fellow in the International Security Program here at the Kennedy School's Belfer Center. Before he came to Harvard, uh, Michael worked at the RAND Corporation, the U.S. Department of Defense, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the Carter Center. And next year, he'll start teaching as an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Tufts University. Michael is the author of a fascinating article that appears in the winter 2011-12 issue of International Security. The article's called China's Century, Why America's Edge Will Endure. And the article basically examines the argument that China's going to catch up with and maybe overtake the United States in the international power sweepstakes and uh, reconsiders that argument and uh, looks at some of the advantages that the United States has and will continue to have. Thanks so much for being uh, with me here today, uh, Michael. I wonder if you could start by saying a little bit about how you got interested in this topic. Ironically, I got into the topic because I thought the United States was doomed to decline and that China was overtaking it as the world's dominant power. I just sort of looked at the numbers and you see that China's economy has been growing at 9% throughout the financial crisis while the U.S. is suffering from its worst economic crisis since the Great Depression and it carries the largest debt in its history. So I initially set out to conduct a study on decline management. That is, how can the United States ensure that this huge transition in world power occurs smoothly and occurs slowly? But then I took a closer look at the data and I realized that China is much weaker than most people believe it is and that the United States, for all of its economic troubles, has, if anything, I think been rising relative to China over the last two decades. And to me, this is sort of the, the key puzzle, not only because it runs counter to the public perception uh, but also because it flies in the face of a lot of classic academic theories. It's a fascinating argument, Michael. I, I expect you've had a few people respond skeptically when you've said uh, the United States is doing a lot better than most people think. Tell me a little bit more about how you make the argument. What do you say to the person who's gone to Shanghai and has seen the futuristic skyline, a dynamic city, a magnetic levitation train, and all the signs <laughs> sure. that show that China's on the move. Yeah. What's, in your view, the real story? I think, you know, I don't want to ruin anyone's vacation. So instead of, you know, making uh, sort of snarky comments, I'd probably just ask a few questions. I'd first ask, well, where else in China have you been? Because Shanghai is the richest area in China. It's got a per capita income close to $20,000, whereas the per capita income for China as a whole is less than half that. It's about $7,500. So using Shanghai as your image of China is sort of like using Wall Street or maybe even the Las Vegas Strip as your image of the United States. So it's not really representative. I'd also ask, you know, what what is going on in Shanghai in those futuristic buildings that you see on the skyline? I think you'd see a very strong foreign presence. Um, half of China's exports are produced by foreign firms. Over 90% of China's high-tech exports are produced by foreign firms. And foreign firms now account for 70% of the FDI that's flowing into China. So while I think Shanghai may be a symbol of Chinese progress, it's also a symbol of immense profits for foreigners. And as for the, the maglev train, there's no doubt that it's, it's a very cool piece of technology. I mean, you're literally floating on magnets and traveling at uh, with 300 miles per hour. But I think in a lot of ways, it sort of symbolizes the state of technology in China. It's this very flashy piece of hardware, but it was designed and built by Siemens, a German firm. 
it cost the Chinese government, I think, over a billion dollars. And so when you factor in that uh, it's only 20 miles long, that's $50 million per mile. So that at that price, it guarantees it's never going to be profitable. So it's you know, essentially a, a fun amusement park ride. And for me, this speaks to one of the larger problems China faces, which is that you have government spending on fancy gadgets that generate relatively limited returns for the Chinese people. So look, Shanghai is a beautiful place, and in many ways it symbolizes the best about China, but I think it's not representative of China as a whole. And some of this flashiness may conceal serious economic deficiencies. That's a good point that you make, that behind this impressive facade, there are some real areas of economic backwardness in China. And one of the indicators you just pointed to was per capita income. And it's fairly clear that China has a lower per capita income than the United States. But isn't China catching up rapidly in terms of per capita income? Aren't there people experiencing higher incomes and won't they continue to do so? Isn't the, the trend in per capita income favoring the Chinese? It depends on when, you know, what time periods you look at. But what I do in the paper is look at sort of the long-term trends. I look at what's happened over the last 20 years from 1991 until uh, 2010. And what I found is that uh, actually China's falling further behind in terms of its per capita income. Despite China's rapid economic growth, the average Chinese citizen is over $17,000 poorer compared to the average American than he or she was in 1991. So once again, it's not like I think China is doing poorly. I think relative to where China was 20 years ago, it's been miraculous, the kind of growth that they've had bringing 400 million people out of poverty. But my argument is that relative to the United States, the United States has also been doing very well. And from a lot of the data that I've looked at, uh, it looks like it's actually doing better than China across most indicators. It's certainly true that the, the key point of comparison is China versus the United States. And you know, we have to look at what the relative indicators say. One of the most important indicators in the eyes of a lot of observers is gross domestic product, GDP. And um, as far as I know, virtually every forecast that exists says that China's going to overtake the United States in terms of GDP. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. And I, I know the forecasts vary, and some people might say it's going to happen in five years. Other people might say it's 30 years. But sooner or later, it looks like China is going to be the biggest economy in the world. Do you have any argument with that claim? And, and what do you think that's going to mean when the Chinese economy is number one and the United States can no longer make the claim to be the world's richest economy? I think it's it's likely true that China will become the world's largest economy uh, sometime between 2015 and, and 2040. But you know, a lot of people sort of look at the GDP data and assume that GDP is the same thing as national power. And what people often forget is that China was the largest economy. It did have the largest GDP in the world uh, through most of the 19th century. And if you look at what was happening in 19th century China, this is what the Chinese refer to as their century of humiliation when they were ripped apart by Western powers and Japan. Whereas 19th century Britain, uh, which is widely regarded as sort of the, the leading power of the time, the hegemon uh, ruled a quarter of the globe, including uh, parts of China, uh, it was never even at its peak the largest economy in the world. Its GDP was about half the size of China's. Uh, where Britain did lead the world was in terms of per capita GDP. And what I argue in the paper is that what really matters for national power is not aggregate wealth, but surplus wealth. That is, how much wealth is left over once people are fed 
and clothes. So while China's 1.3 billion people will produce a lot of output, they also immediately consume a lot of that output. So relatively little is left over for things like public investments and military spending. So I'm not saying that GDP is is not useful. I think it's it's a useful indicator to sort of help define the set of potential major powers. So you can exclude very small wealthy states like Luxembourg or Singapore. But once you're looking at the big countries, I think per capita GDP becomes a much more accurate measure because it represents how developed a country's economy is and how much surplus wealth is available for national purposes. And by that measure, the United States has been rising. That's an interesting point that the United States can still somehow, in your view, maintain its position as the preeminent uh, power, maybe even the world's only superpower, but certainly the number one great power, even if its GDP falls behind that of China. Can you say a little bit more about how the United States can do that, though? You mentioned that China is um, you know, going to have trouble turning all of that uh, new wealth into usable power, but how can the United States really remain number one as its GDP falls behind China? What are the U.S. sources of strength? I think uh, in addition to having a, a great amount of wealth, which it can devote to national purposes, the U.S. also has clear leads in innovation and technology. And this is a key source of national power because uh, if you have high technology industries, those act as bargaining chips in international negotiations. You can use it to get things that you want from other countries. Uh, and in addition to that, the U.S., of course, has amazing military power, military superiority. And I think that that degree of dominance also matters for the United States, because while past hegemons encountered a lot of opposition and weaker states would balance against them, you really don't see weaker states ganging up against the United States. And if anything, for example, what we just saw in Asia, where a lot of the states of the region actually increased their uh, economic and military ties with the United States and were sort of implicitly hedging against China, I think a lot of that has to do with the capabilities that the United States can bring to the table. So I think these are key sources of American dominance that will persist even as the overall size of its economy shrinks relative to China's. You mentioned um, a couple of minutes ago that Britain actually was able to militarily defeat China despite China's much larger gross domestic product back in the 19th century. A lot of people think of the British analogy when they look at American power today. So it's interesting that you, you raised that point. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about why the United States isn't going to follow the British example. You know, maybe Britain was able to defeat China in the 19th century, but in a few decades, the sun did set on the British Empire, and Britain declined to the rank of the middle powers, just at the, as the Roman Empire had declined and collapsed uh, centuries earlier. Why isn't the United States likely to follow the course of Britain and all the previous empires that had their moment in the sun? Yeah, I don't know about the sun never setting on the American empire, but I do think that the U.S. is historically unique in several senses. The first is, as I mentioned, I think it, it enjoys a much larger margin of superiority over other major powers uh, like Britain than any state really has in modern history. I mean, Britain was economically dominant for a while, but it was never militarily dominant. It had a, a very powerful navy, but its military budget uh, was smaller and its army was weaker than France and Russia's. Whereas today, the U.S. spends as much on defense as the rest of the world combined, and it's the only country with global power projection capability. And once again, I think the degree of dominance matters because while historically you had weaker states ganging up on the lead state uh, today because the U.S. is so dominant, uh, I think head-to-head -head competition with the U.S., 
really becomes kind of a futile option. And so you have weaker states either bandwagoning with the U.S. and helping it, uh, or at most sort of engaging in soft balancing that is constraining the United States, but avoiding direct confrontation with it. And so as a result, the U.S. faces less opposition than past states. I'd also add that past periods of hegemony were based more on sort of direct territorial control. So Rome obviously controlled a big chunk of territory. Britain had colonies. And the problem with that, of course, is that's very expensive to maintain that territorial control, whereas the U.S. hegemony is based on a diffuse network of alliances. And you actually have U.S. allies subsidizing the American military, typically covering about half of the basing costs of U.S. soldiers on their territory. Japan and Korea, for example, pay the U.S billions of dollars every year for the privilege of hosting American soldiers. So I think the U.S. is less susceptible to uh, the classic imperial overstretch that beset uh, countries like Britain. And then finally, I argue in the paper that globalization, this process where national economies become more integrated into a single global economy, actually causes wealth and innovation to cluster in the United States. Because goods and investments and people more easily move around the globe, the U.S. is able to sort of suck up a lot of that capital. It can exploit innovations abroad and cheap labor abroad and suck up investment and human capital from the rest of the world in a way that Britain and other past sort of lead states uh, weren't able to do as easily. Maybe there are some differences between the present position in the United States and the position of the British Empire in the past. But I'm still wondering whether what you've described is uh, an America that's a military colossus with feet of clay. Even if the United States can soak up innovation and capital, it faces enormous budget deficits, and it's deeply in debt, deeply in debt to China, among others, because China has very significant holdings of U.S. government bonds. Even if we're the number one military power now, can the United States maintain this uh, position, given the fiscal imbalances that just look unsustainable in the long run? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. certainly has serious fiscal problems, but I, I'm skeptical of the argument that this makes its hegemonic position unsustainable. Uh, defense spending is 20% of the federal budget, and the combined budgets of the state and defense departments are equal to about 5% of U.S. GDP. And that's relatively small compared to the whole created by Social Security, Medicare, discretionary spending. And it's also small in historical terms. During the Cold War, the U.S. often spent 10% of its GDP on defense. So I think there's no doubt that defense spending will need to come down. It's currently uh, in excess of $660 billion. I'd say half a trillion dollars is probably more than sufficient to do what the United States needs to do. But even at current levels, it's still a relatively small portion of total U.S. resources and I think is therefore financially sustainable uh, even in an era of budget cuts. Now, how does this compare to China's position? The U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio is currently above 60%, and according to the Congressional Budget Office, it's going to stay that way uh, even in 2020, whereas China's listed uh, debt level is only 19% of its GDP. But the thing is, these numbers aren't comparable because China's numbers only count central government debt, whereas uh, the U.S. numbers count uh, all public debt, U.S. state and local government debt. And when you factor in uh, Chinese local government debt, estimates place its debt-to-GDP ratio anywhere between 75 to 150 percent, so much greater and potentially twice as large as the U.S. debt level. And then finally, you know, a lot of people say, well, what about China's foreign exchange reserves? I think contrary to popular belief, these aren't some treasure trove of cash that China can use to pay off its debt because they were essentially bought with borrowed money. They're effectively the asset side of a balance sheet. So if the People's Bank of China were to use $100 of foreign exchange reserves to pay off its government debt, 
it would still owe that original $100 worth of renminbi that it borrowed to buy the dollars in the first place. So China's foreign exchange reserves, I don't think should be viewed as sort of a, a surplus because they're largely the result of moving money around. So while it's true, the U.S. fiscal picture is, is not bright, uh, I would argue that it's brighter than China's. That's an interesting point that China also has serious fiscal problems. But when you compare the two countries, don't you also have to look at how they politically manage their economic problems, their fiscal situation? And when you look at the United States, particularly since the um, summer of, uh, say, 2011 and the debate over extending the, the debt ceiling, it looks like the United States is completely dysfunctional. Gridlock and partisanship have made it very difficult to even resolve the most basic economic and fiscal problems. Whereas when you look at China over the last 20, 25 years, it's the most amazing example of rapid economic growth overseen by leaders who apparently were quite uh, wise and foresighted and were able to engineer that economic transformation. Uh, I'm not saying this necessarily shows that uh, Communist Party rule is better than democracy, but it's hard to be optimistic about the future of the United States when you look at the political system and how it's malfunctioning. Don't you think that's going to constrain the American ability to compete and to stay in the first rank of powers in the long run? Yeah, I think there, there may be something to Tom Friedman's point that, you know, what if we could just be China for a day, you know, have an authoritarian government that does a lot of the things that passes a lot of policies that uh, he thinks need to be passed and then go back to having democracy and enjoying all the, the benefits of those liberties. Um, I, I Obviously, our system was not built for consensus, but we do need compromise at times. And I, I am worried that we're losing that ability. Um, I think if you analyze voting patterns in the House and Senate, uh, you see that the average voting position of Republicans and Democrats is further apart now than at any time since we started recording data on this stuff in the 1870s. Um, and so my worry is that, yeah, the long-term political paralysis will turn what should be temporary problems, things like the financial crisis, into much more long-term chronic problems. Uh, but on the other hand, data does show that on a lot of issues, from the budget to the environment to stem cells, that solid majorities of the American public favor some type of pragmatic compromise. And so while I think currently the American government seems to be highly polarized, I'm not sure that American society as a whole is as divided as people say it is. And as long as that's the case, I think I remain a bit more optimistic as it means we can change things through various political reforms. And also I would add that the strength of China's economic model is that when things need to get done, the Chinese government can pass those policies. But the weakness is that uh, you sometimes have excess where investment may be pumped in more based on political calculations rather than based on sort of sound uh, economic advice or through a, a, a larger process that would take the public's interest into account. And you might have uh, a lot of bad investments going up. And a lot of economists uh, argue that China's coming housing bubble may be <laughs> much worse than even the United States's was simply because there's not a lot of oversight on government spending that goes on. So while I think there are strengths, there are also certain weaknesses. And in the aggregate, I remain more optimistic about the American system over the long term than China's system. One particular aspect of the American system that provokes a lot of concern is the, uh, the American educational system. And I think it's a, a pretty strong example of the case where everyone thinks that we need to improve our educational standards. There's plenty of political attention to these topics, but 
hardly a week doesn't go by without seeing another story on how in international testing comparisons, the United States is falling farther and farther behind and dropping to the middle of the um, developed countries. Whereas uh, China, although it may not be rising to the top, is you know improving and its scores in places like Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong are extraordinarily high by international uh, standards. Um, leaving aside whether you know, China will be continuing to improve its educational system, can the United States continue to keep up if its schools deteriorate? Yeah, I think the, the data that people have been throwing around, uh, as you said, it compares the United States as a whole to uh, a locality in China like Shanghai or Beijing, and these are the richest parts of China. And so that would be sort of like having students from Bethesda, Maryland, represent all of the United States. And so I'm not sure what you'd see if you compared China as a whole to the U.S. as a whole, but I would assume U.S. schools would look uh, a lot better. Now, on the other hand, uh, there's no doubt that U.S. primary and secondary education is uh, pretty mediocre. We score in the middle of the OECD pack despite spending more money on education than other countries. And I think from, at least from a sort of a social justice standpoint, clearly something needs to be done to reform U.S. education, especially to address the huge gap uh, between whites and minorities. But I think from a national power perspective, I'm not sure that it's sort of America's Achilles heel. That's an, it's as important as people say it is, because I think what ultimately matters is how good a country's universities are. And the United States is home to the vast majority of the world's best universities. By some surveys, it has 17 of the top 20 or 13 of the top 20 universities in the world. And so as a result, you have students from all over the world competing to get into American schools. And in particular, the number of Chinese students in American universities has increased exponentially over the last 20 years. And according to data from the National Science Foundation, over 90% of Chinese students that get a PhD in a science or engineering field from a US university end up staying in the United States after graduation and joining the American workforce. So while the U.S. primary and secondary education system may be mediocre, the United States compensates for this deficiency by essentially importing brains from other countries. And so as long as that trend sustains, I don't think that uh, sort of bad primary and secondary education will drag down the United States. You've emphasized how the United States can keep up with or even stay ahead of China by taking advantage of its considerable power resources, including its military power, its openness to capital and human capital from the rest of the world and its ability to innovate. But I'm wondering, um, what, what could happen to prove you wrong? What kind of mistakes could American leaders make to reverse the trends that uh, you see and to, to undermine argument? What keeps you up at night worrying about whether American leaders will make the right or, or wrong choices? I think some of the, the problems you've, you've pointed out before, uh, I won't say they keep me up at night, but they're certainly causes for concern. The domestic political paralysis, rising inequality in American society. And then if you look at sort of foreign factors, uh, you might reach this tipping point where China gains more influence within Asia and suddenly Asian states flock to China and abandon the United States. Now, I don't think those, those outcomes are necessarily likely, but it's certainly something to worry about. What worries me the most right now is that U.S. leaders will react to sort of the perception of U.S. decline and base their policies based on that perception without an accurate understanding of the facts. And what some, some scholars are suggesting is that the United States effectively engage in retrenchment, that it start to pull back from the rest of the world and that it start to sort of 
wall off its economy from the global economy. And what my study suggests is that actually uh, the U.S. sort of hegemonic presence abroad and engaging with the global economy are, are vital sources of American power. And so uh, I worry that leaders will eventually be influenced by a lot of the stuff that's being written about the rise of China and the decline of the U.S. and how it's all because of our, our presence abroad and globalization and react to that by pulling back from the world. Whereas I think the U.S. should continue to maintain a robust presence abroad and it should maintain a, a liberal foreign economic policy. I see this debate all the time in uh, the pages of uh, my own journal, International Security, and many others. Some call for retrenchment in the face of the rise of Chinese power, and others call for more assertive U.S. policies to remain uh, engaged and, and maybe even to contain China. I'm wondering how you think the Obama administration currently sees the U.S.-China power balance, and is it following your advice or is it ignoring it? As far as I can tell, the Obama administration, uh, I don't think they're listening necessarily to my advice, but I think they're they're certainly in line with it. As you saw earlier this month and last month, Obama goes to Asia and announces this strategic pivot uh, towards the region and makes a firm commitment to allies and emphasizes that uh, disputes in the region, things like who owns the islands in the South China Sea, should be resolved on sort of a multilateral institutional basis rather than you know letting one country sort of bully another country um, and also in emphasizing and trying to expand trade in the region. So as far as I can tell, the Obama administration uh, feels that the U.S. has the resources to compete with China for influence in the region and that it's willing to maintain that robust presence as well as maintain a sort of a liberal economic policy there as well. And and. Honestly, I wouldn't change a lot about what the current administration is doing. And I would argue that actually uh, U.S. foreign policy towards the region has been pretty good and consistent for the last several administrations. If there was one piece of advice that you would give the um, Obama administration regarding its policy, what would it be if you had the opportunity <laughs> to uh, brief the president for you know, five minutes sure. on future policies toward China. I would say stay the course. There's going to be a lot of pressure to pull back the U.S. presence there, I think largely because of the fiscal problems that the United States faces. But I think maintaining that presence in Asia and maintaining those commitments to allies, the U.S. forces China to worry about the possibility that it will become encircled. And as a result, it channels China's competitive energies into more cooperative endeavors. And I think we've seen this over the last 20 years. The best example is probably in the early to mid-90s, where after the end of the Cold War, Chinese leaders were talking about trying to restore multipolarity to the system. They were trying to foster ties with Russia. And then eventually they, they shot missiles into the waters by Taiwan. And the U.S. responded to this more aggressive turn in Chinese foreign policy by sending carriers towards Taiwan, by upgrading its alliances, particularly with Japan and Australia, and cultivating new ties with Southeast Asia. And Chinese analysts now describe the mid-90s, and in particular 1996, as sort of a watershed period. It was a year in which China's leadership decided they needed to sort of go on a charm offensive to prevent other states of the region from aligning against them. And so you had them participating in talks on North Korea, agreeing to peaceful settlement of disputes in the South China Sea, cultivating strategic partnerships, not just with Russia, but also with India, ASEAN, the United States. So I don't mean to oversell this shift, but I think the record suggests that other states will respond to China's rise by seeking closer ties with the United States. And when the United States reciprocates and shows a firm commitment to uphold and even expand those ties, 
that China has to sort of turn on the friendship diplomacy, and as a result, everyone in the region ends up better off. So I would say stay the course, maintain that commitment, because it seems to have worked well in the past. Michael, one of the uh, many uh, interesting things about your argument is that um, we'll know sooner or later whether it's true or not. Uh, we'll find out if the policies that the United States is now pursuing actually were sound policies, because in the coming you know, years, if not decades, we'll see if they've worked well. Over the next 10, 20, or maybe even 30 years, we'll be in a position to judge whether the United States really has been able to exploit the advantages that you identify to maintain its position as uh, if not the preeminent power, certainly you know, one of the uh, leading powers in the international system. So I, I applaud you for taking this position, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see whether your arguments are borne out by the evidence or whether the, uh, the skeptics about the United States will be able to claim victory in the debate in the next 20 years. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thank you for having me. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information about international security or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.